Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Borky Mutante, a podcast that came through a complicated episode. Lines <laughs> 1 through 24 of Canto 6 of Purgatorio last time, and he's moving on to, whoa, just as complicated a passage. We're going to be at lines 25 through 48 of Canto 6 of Purgatorio. This is my English translation of the Medieval Florentine. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com. You can continue the conversation there with me. You can print it off on your own and make notes on it if you would like. Either way, it would be nice to have you there, but you don't have to go out there. You can sit right here and listen to me read it. If you remember, a crowd has been pressing our pilgrim and Virgil, poor Virgil, perhaps the loser in a game of dice. (laughs) It's about to get worse for Virgil. They've been pressing him and they're trying to get away from all of these people saying, hey, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. So we're going to follow up on that. And Virgil is going to be yet more of a loser. Oh, my gosh. Lines 25 through 48 of Canto 6 of Purgatorio. The moment I got free from all that lot of shades who only prayed that others might pray for them so that they could make quick progress to their sanctified state, I began to say, It appears to me that you expressly denied, O my light, in a certain text that prayers might bend the decrees of heaven. Yet these people pray only for that. Will their hopes then prove vain Or are your words not fully clear to me? And Virgil, to me, my writing is straightforward, yet their hopes are not false. If you look at the case with a cleansed mind, that is to say, the height of justice is not brought low if the fire of love fulfills in an instant what those who are placed here must satisfy. In the textual spot where I made this point, human faults could not be rectified by praying because those prayers were disconnected from God. In truth, don't bother yourself with such questions until she speaks to you. She, a light between the truth and your intellect. I'm not sure you get it. I'm talking about Beatrice. You will see her up top, way up on the summit of this mountain, smiling and happy. Oh, Virgil, you are being called out on a text in the Aeneid. We want to talk about this, the text that Virgil is being called out because of. (laughs) We want to talk about Virgil's reply, which is unbelievably difficult sophistry. It is the biggest quagmire of mumble one could ever imagine, and we want to talk through that. Then I want to talk a little bit about the response to pre-Christian or classical texts in the medieval world and why this is going on. And then I want to offer you a theory, my theory, about why the poet Dante feels he has to take Virgil quite to so much task in this passage. So let's get to it. So they get free of all those shades. They're just praying that others might pray, right? They're saying, oh, please get so-and-so to pray for me. Oh, please get so-and-so to pray for me. Pray for people to help me make my way up purgatory. And they get free of them finally at last. And so Dante whips around and says to Virgil, it appears to me that you expressly denied Oh, my light. Oh, that phrase. Oh, my light. It must be dripping with irony. 
you expressly denied, O my light, in a certain text that prayers might bend the decrees of heaven. Yet these people pray only for that. Will their hopes then prove vain, or are your words not fully clear to me? <laughs> or we could add at the end, are you just dead wrong in the Aeneid? Let's first talk about where this comes from. Dante's talking about a passage in the Aeneid in Book 6, in Aeneas's Descent to the Underworld. I'm in the Aeneid, Book 6, lines hmm, 370, along in there through 376. When Aeneas is going along with the Sibyl, they come across the shade of Polynurus. And Polynurus is not buried back up in the land of the living. His corpse is unburied. So he is not allowed to cross the Stygian swamp. That is, the river Styx. And he begs Aeneas to help him across, at which point the Sibyl speaks up and rebukes Polynurus with essentially a, how dare you? How dare you ask for such a thing? But what she actually says is this, stop hoping that prayers can change the decrees of heaven. In other words, you're unburied, you can't cross over into the afterlife and stop trying to change things by begging or praying for it. That's the text that Dante is talking about, and he's asking Virgil, how come you wrote that when all these people are begging for prayers from the living? Now, what is Virgil's reply? In comedy, Virgil says, my writing is straightforward. So Virgil assumes no guilt, which is really interesting in this passage, yet their hopes are not false. What Virgil is saying is there's no contradiction here. So what I said is right and what they're doing is right. If you look at the case with a cleansed mind, it's hard for me not to hear that as a little neat. A little nudge Dante, but Virgil is the one really being taken to task here. And then Virgil sets into this unbelievably convoluted explanation. That is to say, the height of justice is not brought low. And I should tell you that the actual translation of the Florentine is the height of justice does not become a valley. It's this very strange construction of the top of a mountain suddenly turning into a valley. So a height of justice would be where God is, and it's not turned into a valley if the fire of love, that has to be God, fulfills, and this is the key, in an instant, right at the same time, what those who are placed here must satisfy. So what he says in a very convoluted way is it's a matter of timing. God wills what they will because they will it at the same moment, and that's why it takes place. Now, listen, that is not what that text from the Aeneid said, and in fact, it borders on unintelligible. What Virgil has just done, if you think this through, is Virgil has just locked God into temporality. Now, I realize Dante doesn't know what the multiverse, and Dante doesn't know about what time is the way we now know what time is. Okay, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. But still, God is outside of time, even in Dante's day. But here it's saying, essentially, God wills what they actually ask for at the very minute they ask for it, thereby tying God into temporality. It's really convoluted. And then it goes on. In the textual spot where I made this point, Virgil says, human faults could not be rectified by praying because those prayers were disconnected from God. 
what? So, in other words, you're saying that, well, you know, listen, when I wrote this, it was all about pagans. Okay, fine, but let's remember Capaneus stretched out on the sands as a blasphemer who's throwing his insults at Zeus. And that's considered a blasphemy against God. But here Virgil says, oh, well, you know, I was writing about pagans. Now, listen, (laughs) if you just think it through, that first bit about God does the same thing they do at the same exact moment, so it's okay. They ask for some kind of help along the way, and at the same time they ask for it, God wills it, so at that instant it happens together, so that's okay. And then he backs up and he explains it again, but now in a different vein. He says, oh, and by the way, when I was writing, it was just about pagans, so it can't really have been true. What? I mean, this is kind of uh, really getting complicated. And then, finally, the ultimate sophistry. In truth, don't bother yourself with such questions until she speaks, thereby throwing it all out onto Beatrice. At the end, this argument gets so convoluted that Virgil throws it off onto Beatrice and says, wait for her. She'll tell you everything. This is such a wild bit. First of all, Virgil is coming into critique for a passage in the Aeneid. And this is the second time he's had to rewrite the Aeneid. He rewrote it with Manto and the fortune tellers saying, oh, the founding of Mantua is not the way you ever heard it, (laughs) despite the fact that the way you ever heard it was from me and the Aeneid. And now here he is again, basically saying, oh, well, I wasn't really wrong. I, I was just writing about pagans. And besides, you know, there's this complicated theological point about God's will and human will, and they're happening simultaneously. So, ta-da, we're all done, and don't worry about it, because Beatrice is ahead of us. Virgil has come in for some rough bits here. He's become like the teacher who was asked a question that she or he cannot answer, but instead feels compelled to answer. He reminds me, have you ever seen any of the episodes with Philomena Kunk, the British, well, that's not a real name, that's the character she plays, the British comedian who asks these ridiculous questions of academics. And when she asks them these ridiculous questions, they're not used to not being able to give an answer. And so so they falter. She asks one very prominent Egyptologist if the pyramids were built from the top down or the bottom up. And this poor woman stammers for an answer because she's so used to giving smarty pants answers and she's being asked this asinine question. Well, this kind of reminds me of those academics. Virgil's being put on the spot and then Virgil responds with just gobbledygook. That makes very little sense and yet he's kind of humbled by it all. In other words, he's finally at the end has to say, well, you know, I'm your guide, but you got to wait for Beatrice. Poor Virgil. Let's talk about classical texts and the Aeneid and what's going on here. What's going on here is a result of the Crusades. <laughs> Everything is the result of the Crusades. What's going on here is a little bit the result of the Crusades. What happens in the Crusades, right, is that Western powers, kings, Godfrey of Bouillon and others, get together and march to the Levant and take parts of the Levant, lose parts of the Levant, etc., But one of the things that is really intriguing that happens is these Western warlords confront Constantinople and then the Abbasid 
caliphate in Baghdad, and they come across civilizations far more advanced, far more opulent, and far greater than their own. This contradicts the basic premise they're working under, which is that knowledge flows from the east to the west. It starts in Jerusalem, it moves to Greece, it moves to Rome, it moves to Europe. This is the way they're all taught to think. This may be the way you were taught to think in college. This conveniently forgets the caliphates on the Iberian Peninsula, where far west, a great deal of learning was going on. Okay, but never mind that. They encounter these places, Constantinople and the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, that are far grander than anything they have back home. And while they're there, they begin to encounter the texts. One of the things that happens is the texts start to disseminate across Europe. Most of us have been taught that the Renaissance occurs because of the re-earthing of classical texts, but this is completely false. This story was put in place in order to minimize Islamic learning. The caliphates, both on the Iberian Peninsula and in Baghdad, kept Greco-Roman learning alive through much of what we now call the Dark Ages. And these Europeans came across these texts. Aristotle, for example, they came across Aristotle in Arabic and Ladino, the Sephardic language of the Jews, in the caliphates of the Iberian Peninsula. And there they encountered these pre-Christian texts, and they did three things with them. One, these are interesting moral teachings. Think here of the Stoics. Think here of certain philosophers. All right, so we get this pre-Christian stuff and it's moral teaching. The second attitude is to correct them. And we start getting all kinds of expurgated versions of the classical text saying, well, they weren't right. They didn't know the Christian doctrine, so we're going to change the text a bit. And this starts happening across the high Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. It's much as Charles and Mary Lamb did with Shakespeare when they rewrote Shakespearean plays in the Victorian era, allegedly for children, but they sanitized them and they took out the difficult parts. And they kind of retold the stories fit for a Victorian audience without all the wild ideas ironic complications of Shakespeare. But the third thing that happened, as you well know, is that Western thinkers began to see the text as a false covering. And this is actually the word that they use in Latin, but the word they use means false covering or false clothes on Christian doctrine. In other words, pre-Christian doctrine is something that's like Christianity, but, you know, it just is dressed up wrong. We just need to redress it. You can see two things going on here in this passage. You can see Dante trying to rewrite the Aeneid by calling Virgil out on it. And you can see Dante trying to use the Aeneid, wanting the Aeneid to be in line with Christian doctrine. Both are at play in this passage, and both are resonating in the whipping that Virgil gets as he is forced to confront his errors in the Aeneid, and he is forced to give the most garbled answer imaginable. 
Now, let me advance a theory about this passage if I can, and I'm going to try not to be as garbled as Virgil is. So Dante says, you know, they're praying for this and they're trying to bend the decrees of heaven. Are they? Are these people on these slopes, these lower slopes of purgatory, trying to bend the decrees of heaven? I don't think so. These people are already on their way to heaven. And for me, this is a problem with Dante the poet. Let me explain. Dante the poet is still in an infernal state of mind. In Inferno, once a soul gets placed, flatterers, seducers, panderers, uh, you know, uh, false prophets, uh, hypocrites. Once a soul gets placed in Inferno, they're stuck there. I think that Dante is still a little bit confused. And the question is, are these souls asking not to be stuck here anymore? But everyone in Purgatorio is ascending Mount Purgatory, or to put it another way, everyone in Purgatorio is in transit, with the exception of Virgil, as we'll see. I think Dante the Poet is still a little bit back in that infernal imagination because he's saying basically they're bending the decrees of heaven. No, they're not. They're put here because they're the excommunicated, because they died of violence, because they were too indolent and only repented at the last second. And they're put here so that they can repent a bit before they make it into purgatory itself. But they're not put here permanently. So there's no bending of any decrees of heaven by prayers of those back in the land of the living. Dante only could see that they are bending some kind of divine decrees if he thought they were stuck in these places and the prayers got them out. No, the prayers hasten them on the journey that they're already on. So what I'm telling you is that I think Dante has created a question and an answer that is based on a false premise that models the infernal action of sticking a soul somewhere for all of eternity, when in fact the truth of the matter and what the poet has to come to understand is that everyone in purgatory is moving forward. Yes, they may sit a while under a boulder, but ultimately they're all on their way up. Once we get here, we're amongst the saved. I don't think, and this is a wild statement to make, I don't think the poet has quite caught up with his own narrative yet. And so he catches Virgil in an error, which is, in fact, not even an error, not even in the poet's own theology. OK, that was a complicated bit. Taking Dante the poet to task? Well, I guess I'm the guy to do it. So I did I promise not to do that too often. I don't want to make you disconcerted at Dante. I only want to say that the poem is complicating around us, and it's taking the poet some time to catch up to the complications that the narrative encompasses and encloses. At the very end of it all, still, Virgil comes in for quite a drubbing all through Ante Purgatory, that is, the cantos before the gate of Purgatory in Canto 9, all through it. Virgil is constantly coming in for a drubbing. No wonder he is the loser at the game of dice. 
Join me for the next bit and the final bit of the narrative landscape of Canto Six of Purgatorio in the next episode of Walking with Tante. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then.